Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the pleasure of reading our passage this morning. It's going to be Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It can be founded in your pew Bibles on page 921, and it'll be on the screen as well. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above his that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church family, this is God's word. Very good. My name is Michael Aiken, and I'm going to be your preacher this morning. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and it's my pleasure to be able to give uh, a message here from God's Word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Lord, we're, we are just humbled that you have given us uh, this year. It's only by your grace that we're here. And so we ask you, Lord, this simple prayer that you would open our eyes to see you and to see ourselves and may your Holy Spirit work in us to be the humble people that you have called us to be. So Lord, grant that prayer, we pray. And as your word is preached, may you be clearly seen. And may we see ourselves at our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you, have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Uh, Carolyn and I had one this last May of 2023, and uh, we went to the Adirondacks Mountains in uh, New York. We've never been there before. And we hiked up this mountain. It was only three miles, but I'm going to tell you, and I've done a lot of hiking, this is one of the hardest hikes that I have ever done. Maybe it's because I'm over 60 now. And, and I'll tell you, there were a lot of steep rocks and the black flies were just in abundance and we had to wear nets over our heads. And when we got to the top of the mountain, it was a beautiful, sunny day. Uh, the temperatures were in the 70s or the 80s. And when you get up there, you're just looking around, you're seeing the other mountains, the beautiful scenery there, the lakes, the vast trees, the birds are soaring. Just a beautiful, it's worth the, the arduous journey up that mountain. And if scripture has high mountains, 
I believe this would be one of the highest mountains. The passage that we're looking at today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It is one of the highest peaks. For me, that little hike was my Mount Everest. I'll never do Mount Everest. But here we are at the Mount Everest in Scripture, I believe. It's a beautiful, majestic passage which speaks of the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us of our Lord's pre-incarnate existence, who being in the form of God. It tells us of his incarnation, which is his state of humility, who being in the form of a servant. And then it tells us of his state of exaltation, when every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The passage before us today tells us how we are to live our lives in light of the Incarnation. We spent all of December looking at Jesus and his Incarnation in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And I've been given the freedom to pick a passage and have chosen this passage for us to look again at the Incarnation and to see how we should live our lives in light of of the Incarnation or because of the Incarnation? How should we live our lives? There are two points that I would like you to see and impress upon you this morning from this passage. There are two B's. Be humble by looking to Jesus. So if you leave here today and you say, you know, I wonder what the message was like. Just think of two B's. Be humble by looking to Jesus. Be humble. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 1 of our passage, any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, any affection and sympathy, and there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, his own interest, but also to the interests of others. God is calling us in this passage to be humble. And this message, I believe, is very countercultural. Our culture tells us to focus on ourselves. And God is telling us to focus on him and others. In humility, our passage says, verse 3, count others more significant or more valuable than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I believe these first four verses define for us what Christian humility is. Humility is a virtue which is not native to our fallen natures. Pride, which is the opposite of humility, comes natural to us as sinners. Let's look at each of these first four verses just briefly to see what God is telling us through this letter of Paul to the Philippians. Verse 1 
connects with the last part of chapter 1, verse 27 in particular, where the apostle tells the church he desires that they live lives worthy of the gospel while he is in prison. Notice how the word so in the ESV, that is a therefore. And so it's a connecting word. And it's connecting us to Paul is wanting them to have a certain behavior in light of the gospel because of the gospel. And the gospel, just by way of reminder, it's the good news of Jesus, his life and his death. And it demands of us to live a certain way. And that certain way is to be humble. Verse 1 is saying this, Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from his love, and since there is participation or fellowship in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and also since there is affection and sympathy from our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all these if statements are not possibilities or probabilities. They are realities that we have as Christians from our God and from the body of Christ ministering to us. Because we are united to Jesus Christ as a corporate body, united to him, God wants us to live humble lives out of these realities, these foundational realities. In verse 2, Paul says this to the Philippians, complete my joy. The encouragement in verse 1, the comfort, the fellowship we have from God and with God and with other believers and the affection and sympathy we have in the body of Christ are real. But it's like Paul is saying, but, but would you just do these things that I'm going to tell you here, which would be like putting a bow on the package. The package, or I should say the present, looks great, the beautiful wrapping, but that bow just kind of completes it. Or, or that cake is delicious, that foundational, maybe it's a, a really rich, deep, dark chocolate cake, one of your favorites maybe, but boy, that peanut butter icing on top, would you just complete the cake? Would you just complete my joy? by being humble, by being unified. Please be unified is what he's wanting. Don't be fighting, be unified. Be of one mind. Proud people are not unifiers. Proud people are focused on pleasing self, not God. They are interested in getting their own way, not God's way. Our unity as Christians is on the major teachings, the doctrines of the Bible. Christians are not going to think the same way about everything, though. As you read this passage, you might think that. Like, for instance, your favorite football team. I know, we have Packer fans. Any yays? No. Uh, we have Eagles fans and Steelers fans. I mean, we have different opinions about food, and you could go on and on. Of course, we're not unified on anything, but on everything. But when it gets to the basics, the majors of the faith, who God is, that he is triune, that Jesus is God, what is the gospel? We're unified on that. How a person gets right with God. 
by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus Christ. We're unified there. We're unified in what God has told us about how to live. We're to live holy lives. He alone is to be worshipped. We're unified on that. Idols are to be forsaken. We're unified there. So unity and humility are connected. I want you to see that in this passage. But what is humility? Verses 3 and 4 call us to forsake pride, to do nothing out of pride, and to be humble. To be humble is to be low. To be proud is to be high like a peacock strutting around. To be low in our thinking of ourselves is humility. To be humble, we must compare ourselves with God and not other people. Romans 12, 3 is a key verse here. I'm going to give you this as a cross-reference. For by the grace given to me, says the Apostle Paul, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The Christian life starts with humility and it continues with humility. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, that is humility. It's understanding our bankruptcy before a holy God. Jesus also said we must become humble like children to enter the kingdom of God. He said this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Humble people are dependents. They depend on God. Proud people are independents. They don't need God. It's like our children. When we're raising children, we notice this with our children. There's times where it's really good when they say, help me, daddy, help me, mommy, help me. But when they really need help and they don't want the help, that's a form of pride. The Christian life, starts with humility and must continue with humility, this lowness, this lowness. I, I love what Martin Luther says about repentance, which is, it is a form of humility. Now, he was a 16th century reformer, so he lived in the 1500s, and he, he put those 95 theses on the Wittenberg castle door, and the first one says this, of the 95 Theses. These were points of debate. He wanted to have an intellectual debate. He wanted to see change. Listen to this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The Christian life starts with repentance and humility and continues with humility. Humility is having a proper view of, our, of yourself as you compare yourself to God. Remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee was proud and compared himself to the others 
And as he was praying in the temple, he thanked God that he wasn't a sinner like those other people. The publican, the tax collector, he couldn't even look up to God. But he was comparing himself with God, and he was humble and repentant. And he said, pounding his chest, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't look at other people. He was comparing himself with God. The publican did that. And this shows us what humility is. Now, I use the word low to describe what humility is. But I do not want you to misunderstand what I'm getting at here, what I'm saying. Humility is not being down on yourself. It is not cutting yourself down or tearing yourself down or belittling yourself in any way. It is not calling yourself stupid or idiot. That's not humility. That is pride. Why? You may ask. Because it is still focused on self. It's still focused on you. Humility focuses on God and others, whereas pride focuses on self. I love how Tim Keller says it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. God is calling us not to pride, to not be proud, when he says in verse 3 that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is literally empty glory. Empty glory. That's what conceit is. He is telling us to not be idolaters who try to fill the empty tank of our lives with the empty glory of idols. Proud people have self as their idol. I'm speaking to myself. I'm speaking to everyone here. We all understand this, idolatry. An idol is that which takes the place of God and is worshipped. God alone can fill our empty tank and give us satisfaction. And when we look to self and other things and make them gods, we end up being empty and dissatisfied. I love again how Keller says this. He says, when you are hungry, walking in Manhattan, you're going to be distracted and stop along the way to get filled. We can all relate to this. And, and Manhattan, if you've ever been to New York, just some of the best food ever. Conversely, when you are full and you're walking through Manhattan, you will pass all those food vendors which represent idols in this story. I love this, uh, how Keller put it. The, the hungry, empty, idolatrous heart in, in Keller's story here looks to the idols to fill it. But the heart is empty. 
because the idol cannot deliver on its promise of, to give us fulfillment. An idol is that thing that you have got to have. And if you don't have it, you will curse God and want to die. It can be good things. Like money. Sex. Possessions. Or position. Or the praise of people. The approval of people. Those Good things. But when good things become ultimate things that you must have to be happy and satisfied, when you've got to have it at all cost, then you are committing idolatry. So when good things become ultimate things, that is a bad thing. We all have done this. And we need the Lord's help every day to keep us from worshiping these functional idols. What is it in your life, if it were taken from you, you would curse God and want to die? It may be a person, a position, a possession. These are good things in and of themselves. But when we depend upon them to give us fulfillment and the ultimate satisfaction that only God can give us, then they are an idol. And all idols need repented of. John said at the end of his first letter, little, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This message of humility is countercultural. The message of our culture is this. Our culture says, follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Focus on you. I, I hear this at times. You do you, I'll do me. God says, don't follow your heart, but follow his heart. God says, don't believe in yourself, but believe in him. God says, don't look out for number one, which is yourself, but look out for the needs of others. God says, we're number two or three or four, we're last. And God says, focus on him and don't focus on yourself. The culture has a very strong, powerful message for us. And while we live in the culture and are not physically separated from it, I don't, I don't advocate that. I'm, it's not my view of Scripture. We're to mingle and we're to be influencers in culture. And we need to let our light shine in a humble manner by caring for the needs of others first. This passage gives us the true pathway to happiness and joy. And it is not by focusing on ourselves first but by focusing on the needs of others. So I'm going to repeat it again. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Human wisdom says, if you're unhappy, focus on you. That's human wisdom. God tells us happiness comes by focusing on him and others' needs. 
And isn't that ironic? We all have experienced this, I believe. When we're feeling down, God in his providence has someone who needs something. So we meet that need. A need comes up, we go, we minister to that person, we listen to them, we encourage them. And here our cure for unhappiness was not looking in and trying to get the resources there because they're going to end in emptiness. But it's by looking out, looking to God and looking to others and meeting the needs of others. I think the old hymn may have got it right. Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. As we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Living in light of the incarnation means being humble. And the way we can be humble is by looking to Jesus. Now, we need his spirit to do that. But it's by looking to Jesus in our passage here. In sports, one of the things that is critical to being a good athlete is keeping your focus. We'll hear that often, and it's true. I, I've experienced that as an athlete myself. When there is a lapse in focus, your performance will go down. I used to swim, and my coaches, competitively, and my coaches emphasize the need to look at the end of the pool and don't focus on the competition, but focus on stroke production. As Christians, we have the focus we need, Jesus, who is the best example ever of humility. How can we be humble? By looking to Jesus. Verses 5 through 11. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the greatest example of humility ever. He never was proud, never committed the sin of pride. And this is a hymn. What we're looking at here in verses 6 through 11, that's a hymn. And it's made up of three stanzas, which gives us the history of Jesus. It is the story, get this, from riches to rags. Or better yet, it is a story from riches Maybe I should start this way. No, this way. From riches to rags to regality. Riches, rags, regality. Riches. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is the eternal Son. And as the eternal Son of God, he is... 
in the form of God. Don't think of external. When we think of form, we think of external. Greek has another word for that, schema. This is the word morphe. It has to do with the being. This shows that Jesus in his being, he shares in the one being of God. He is equal with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. They share in one essence. He is, Jesus is the uncreated creator. He is God, I'll say. We get our word aseity from it, which means he is, his aseity is his independence. He alone is independent. He is not dependent on anything because he is God with all the attributes of God. The son did not count equality with God, which he is. He didn't count it a thing as a thing to be grasped. This means he would not use or not hold on to the divine privileges that he had to his own advantage. He was willing to leave the rich palace of heaven and put on servant clothes to come to earth, to incarnate. Servant clothes. It was not about grasping but it was about giving. That's riches. Now we come to rags. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Another passage that explains this very clearly is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty so that you by his poverty might become rich this passage speaks of the incarnation of the word taking on our flesh what i want you to see is that jesus did not and could not divest himself of his deity and the attributes that God has. That's impossible. That he emptied himself does not mean he quit being God temporarily while he took on our human nature. No. Jesus assumed to himself our human nature with a human mind and a human body. He did this for us and our salvation. He assumed in his humanity that which needed redeemed. He was truly a man while remaining truly God. This is one of the greatest mysteries equal to the Trinity. We don't fully grasp it. The only thing he did not take in his incarnation was a sinful nature. He was not born with a sinful nature, but he took on the full penalty of sin and bore the full wrath of God. On the cross, he did this for us and satisfied the full justice of God by his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross for us. His obedient life of no sin and keeping the law proved that he was the God-man qualified to be our Redeemer. Jesus was one divine person, the eternal Son, 
with two natures now. When he incarnated, he took on the human nature. Verse 7 explains how he emptied himself. So when you read this, you might say, well, what does it mean that he emptied himself? As you read the text, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And this is the union here. It's a union of the divine nature, the divine person who has a divine nature, united with the human nature. And I like to use the words now, assumes to himself and takes to himself. They're probably the best way to describe this mystery of the incarnation about the person of Christ. I no longer, and I used to, I repent of this, I no longer use the words addition to describe the union because I don't want anyone nor myself to think that you can add to the divine nature. That's an impossibility because God is unchanging. He cannot add. He does not change. The big point to see here is God stooping down. The Son stooping down, God the Son stooping down to our level in order to save his rebellious image bearers. That's the point of the passage. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By taking, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This humility of Jesus becoming a servant to die for us this is amazing love, and this is love we do not deserve. Lastly, regality. We've looked at riches, rags, and now regality. Therefore, this is the last verses here, 9, 10, 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This last stanza of this Christ hymn, these last three verses point to Jesus' exaltation, his regality. These verses prove that Jesus is God. They are a quotation of Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23, where every knee shall bow. That passage in Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, that refers to Yahweh. And Yahweh is our God, the great I Am. Uh, the other English word is Jehovah. Yeah, this is the covenant name of God. Jesus shows that the way to be raised up is to be humble. And, and the way to conquer his enemies was to die a humble, substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross for undeserving sinners. The name that is above every name is not Jesus, as we may think when reading this. I know I do. I think that as I read this. But I'm convinced it is the name, the Lord, which is the Greek word, kurios, and is translated for the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All that to say, Jesus is Lord, is the earliest confession of the first Christians. 
Jesus as Lord means he is exalted as the authority over all the universe. And King Jesus in his regality is now ruling and reigning the whole universe. He's holding the whole thing up by the word of his power. And he continues to reign in 2024. And when he comes back at his second coming, every knee will bow to him and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a humble, exalted Lord we have. May God give us the grace we need in 2024 to look to his incarnation and be reminded to serve others and consider them more significant and more valuable than ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we continue to just ask you for the grace that we need to, to not look to ourselves, which we are so prone to do, Lord. We confess our pride. We confess that it's something that we struggle with. We sometimes are very, very competitive. That's not good. It's pride. Lord, keep us from this sin. Give us the grace of humility. Help us, Lord, to, to love one another as we should. And may you be glorified as we continue to worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.